Hello and welcome to Breeze Blocks, where editors discuss works in progress, urgent matters, and current happenings in architecture and spatial politics. My name is Maria Mazzanti. Today I am joined by Ariel Azulin Lichten. Hi, Ariel. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Maria. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Ariel is the founder of Slash Projects, a multidisciplinary design firm in New York. She was also part of some digital activism projects for establishing equality in architecture. So I thought it could be an interesting topic for today's Breeze Block and the reason why I contacted her to talk today. Before starting to talk about this project and before you tell us about what you did, I think it would be nice to know your perspective about the invisibility of women in architecture, because I think that was an important trigger for you to start this project. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, really, I, you know, I've always kind of had that awareness. My mom is an architect, so I think I grew up with that um, being part of the strong narrative of architecture and women's place in it. And when I entered the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, where I did my Master's of Architecture, it became so much more apparent, you know, especially as I was undergoing my own training in architecture and um, being a part of kind of the gender inequality that exists, I think, both in the workplace, but also in the institutional way that, um, you know, the, the pedagogy is disseminated. And I, I really was um, confronted with the, um, the various kind of um, nuanced ways in which Uh, women are more invisible within the profession. And that's really, I think, what brought my activism to the forefront in this kind of domain. Um, I would say prior to architecture school, I, also, I, I was already doing a lot of activism related to, you know, other political um, issues and inequality in my undergrad. And it, it just kind of felt like the natural progression Um, where, you know, I just, when I see something that's unjust, I feel like I have to speak about it. Now let's jump into the projects you have done. Um, so probably the first will be the petition you started with Caroline James. The, that's probably the most well-known one because it, it really got a lot of attention for, I think, both tapping into a moment in time when this was, um, you know, part of the rising kind of subconscious and... The petition was essentially a response to Denise Scott Brown um, making a statement about wanting recognition for her part in the role of her partner, Robert Venturi, receiving the Pritzker Prize in 1991. And during it was my thesis year at the GSD, uh, and I was kind of reading architecture news you know, on architect or design. It was kind of everywhere. And, and Denise had come out with a statement saying, you know, I want retroactive recognition, some kind of inclusion ceremony. And at the time I was, you know, a lot of these blogs tend to have a lot of comments and people are, can be really nasty in the comments. So I, I started reading the comments um, of people, you know, saying, well, oh, I'm going to demand a Pritzker Prize as well. And who is she to ask for recognition? And, you know, the, it started to really hit me. Why doesn't she have recognition? Um, she's brave to have said something about it. And, and as I started to kind of delve deeper into what is Denise Scott Brown's story, um, she's such a, I think, 
um, iconic figure. I mean, Venturi Scott Brown as a firm in the history of American architecture, at least, is they're so iconic. So the question really became not, you know, what is it? It really became about why she was being denied recognition and um, and where, you know, in the history of sexism that lies. And so as I really looked more into the issue, I couldn't understand why the Pritzker Prize was not given to both partners. Um, and essentially, the petition started from a, a, almost a naive place um, where I thought, well, this institution isn't aware currently, you know, at the time it was 2013, I thought that we were beyond overt sexism. I thought, well, you know, there are so many instances of, um, you know, these sexism as nuance or um, unspoken, but overt sexism, I, I kind of felt like we had all agreed, you know, as a culture um, that was that was not something we were all participating in and denying a public figure equal recognition to their partner felt like it was part of that category for me. Um, and so what started as kind of a naive plea to the institution presenting that recognition and that being the Pritzker Prize turned into a broader outcry as they, in rejecting you know, to correct that oversight of not having given both partners equal recognition. Um, you know, they held firm on their stance that they had done the right thing in 1991. And I think that that really bolstered this public opinion that we do have a problem that we need to confront with gender parity and even our institutions are unwilling and unwavering to recognize um, where their historical sexist past has left them. So I still think today it's a huge issue and that they need to rectify the, the past. And by allowing one partner to have received recognition when both part simply because Denise was considered a lesser partner because she's the wife and the woman, by the Pritzker Prize not correcting that kind of marker in time, they're essentially saying, well, we refuse to acknowledge our sexist past and therefore it still stands true now. Yeah, of course. Well, now let's jump to the other project you did. Is this Wikipedia editing marathon that you started in the storefront for art and architecture in New York? I think that they're actually both quite related and one really came out of the other because they both are related to um, the transcribing of history and and what it what it means to tell the story and also the idea that recognition is not only about, you know, bolstering one person's ego. It's actually more about, in my opinion, it's more about um, allowing future generations to, you know, to realize their potential. Because in Denise being awarded the prize, therefore, in so many, you know, millions of people's eyes, she gains, you know, that respective glory. And I think it would instill in a lot of women, especially um, who could consider her a role model, you know, more confidence and more that there there's more precedence really for, you know, women, women having achieved the same as men. And in the process of the petition, 
one of the kind of funny, interesting things that came out of it was the Wikipedia page of the Pritzker Prize, because as we were kind of trying to um, to really make them realize how much of an impact as an organization that decision has on literally millions of people, one way was to edit the Wikipedia page. And, you know, there were, I think, a, a number of kind of activists working on um, both Denise Scott Brown's Wikipedia page and the Pritzker Prize Wikipedia page and editing into place the fact that there is a controversy, the fact that the organization has a sexist past. And I think, you know, that became a, a place where this contention was being um, written and rewritten. And, you know, it, it would be written one way one day and, and then the next day it would be written another uh, another way. And the way Wikipedia works is is that there are these kind of like editors that I think there are the, the more um, vetted editors and there are, you know, more casual editors. Anybody can become an editor. Um, and so once uh, a page kind of takes on enough, um, has like a, a, enough data, I think, to, to justify uh, some changes, the vetted editors will continue to enforce that on the page. So it becomes more true in a way. Um, and anyway, I think the main point of that whole exercise was to kind of in my mind, again, bring up this um, this question of how we're writing knowledge and how knowledge is disseminated and who is disseminating that knowledge that becomes, therefore, what we consider truth. As I researched more about Wikipedia and, and, and the process of creating this written document that's kind of ever-changing, it also came to my attention that there are very few women contributors to Wikipedia. And of course, from knowing that, it makes sense that, you know, the topics that are covered and the way by which they are covered is influenced by the people recording those stories and that history and what uh, sources are deemed credible or not. And so it's so important to to really be aware of of like what the um, what the unsaid bias is of the authors, even in such a platform as Wikipedia that is veiled with so much um, su such a sense of objectivity. Um, and so that's where digital invisibles really came into fruition. Um, I had seen other projects uh, by different art organizations who were organizing these Wikipedia edit-a-thons to write into history women artists who had been overlooked. And I thought, well, we could do the same for women architects. Um, and you can see even just by searching through Wikipedia um, and looking at, you know, men's pages versus women's pages, there are thousands more words written about men, thousands more changes made on a daily basis um, of men's pages. And that's, I think, also related to who is doing the writing. So, well, of course, you believe in digital activism. I mean, you were telling us about the projects you have done 
using digital activism as a tool. But I think these days, especially now with uh, everything that is happening with Black Lives Matter, for example, there are a lot of different positions and discussions about the use of social media and online activism in general. So I would like to know, what do you think from your experience? How fruitful it is? Where is the scope? How critical can we be about it? Like for me, it's just that it's still a big question because I am very interested in it, but I also find all these positions against it every day. So I think it would be nice to know. What do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I still think it's super critical, especially, you know, I, I, I don't know the, the percentage of minority voices writing into Wikipedia, but I imagine it's probably, you know, along the lines of, you know, women. It's just so many underrepresented voices taking a contributing role. And uh, definitely something that we can improve and I think will improve the kind of um, the the way that min minorities are represented um, in the fields. And I personally do really strongly believe that that has such a direct correlation with um, inspiring future generations. So on the one hand, I think that activism needs to also exist in the streets and there needs to be um, a tangible side. But doing Um, you know, taking actions online can also have a very strong impact. I think if it's done in a very strategic way where there's, it's not just kind of a, I want to say greenwashing or digital washing. I'm not sure what the term is, but, you know, something that, that can have lasting impact. Um, and I mean, during this time, uh, you know, a, a curator, um, of, a well-known design institution was posting on Instagram, you know, I'm looking for black architects in history. And because of the Wikipedia edit-a-thon, we had worked on entering a number of black women architects actually, who were some of the first registered black architects in America. And, you know, I had that information. So I was able to pass that to him. Um, and hopefully that will therefore impact, you know, future shows and, and, create even more um, record of their work and their legacy. But at the same time, it really has, it's also such academic work. Um, so it really needs to kind of exist at so many stages, like in uh, PhD programs and theorists and curators really need to be kind of putting in the, um, the academic work to, to really back up anything that can therefore be disseminated online. Okay, last question before we, we say goodbye. <laughs> are there any projects that you're conducting or initiatives you find valuable that are related to digital activism and architecture right now? So in my own firm, um, during this, basically at the start of the pandemic, we started a series called Design and Crisis, um, really just to explore the way uh, design has often been an output of times of crisis and to understand, you know, how the constraints have played into the design world over time and looking in history. And as the Black Lives Movement uh, has really exploded here, we shifted in looking at attention of uh, design and race and really understanding, you know, what are the, um, what are the, the methods and, and mechanisms over time that have either been used to oppress or, or that need to have a more critical view. And so to me, it's really about um, educating ourselves in the studio, also kind of dispelling certain myths that I think are, um, you know, Um, myths that are uh, things that we have kind of 
overlooked as being um, tools of oppression and and unlocking those and really taking a critical view of uh, where we are and how we've gotten here and how we can, as designers, help to enable change. 